Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Should offshore wind be measured in knots or watts? At Equinor, we measure it in gigawatts. When complete, Dogger Bank Wind Farm could produce 3.6 gigawatts of electricity. Visit equinor.co.uk. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. How did you go bankrupt? asks the fictional author, Bill Gorton, in Hemingway's seminal bullfighting novel, The Sun Also Rises. Two ways, replies his friend, Mike. Gradually, and then suddenly. Gradually, and then suddenly. So it is with so many of our failures in life, and so it was, in the end, with the demise of Boris Johnson. As you obviously know, the British Prime Minister resigned on Thursday afternoon, bringing to an end a tumultuous premiership, which in less than three years saw him, amongst other things, illegally suspend Parliament, win a landslide election victory, drag Britain out of the European Union, oversee a bungled response to a global pandemic in which tens of thousands needlessly died, and then a stunning response to the development of a vaccine which saved the lives of thousands more. We saw multiple scandals. We saw international law repeatedly flouted. We saw lies out of Downing Street becoming the norm. We saw a mighty response to a land war in Europe, but precious little on the domestic front. We saw law-breaking inside Downing Street on a massive scale. We saw the Prime Minister himself fined by the Met Police. Gradually, week after week, month after month, we saw support for the Prime Minister ebbing away. First among the public, in poll after poll, focus group after focus group, by-election after by-election. And then crucially, we saw it ebbing away too among his own MPs. And yet for all of that drip, drip, drip of events, the ending, as Hemingway wrote, came suddenly. The PM's resignation statement on Thursday came less than a week after the scandal that would finally bring him down broke. Allegations that his deputy chief whip, Chris Pincher, had drunkenly groped two men in a club in Piccadilly. The week that followed those revelations, the week we've all just lived through, was one of those weeks in Westminster where events seem to take on a life of their own, where one thing leads to another, and then another, and then another, and where it ends 
inevitably, with a lectern outside 10 Downing Street. As we've seen at Westminster, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. Now, amid the adrenaline of these moments, it's easy to forget that weeks like these have always happened in British politics. Just imagine being in Westminster during the Norway debate in May 1940, for example, or during the week of the Suez Crisis in late 56, or the last days of Margaret Thatcher in November 1990. It must have felt the same. People rushing around Westminster, plotting, briefing, resigning all over the place. Eruptions of news happening everywhere, culminating in epoch-defining moments which would be written about for decades to come. But something's changed in the way we watch and now even participate in weeks like the one we've just been through. Something very specific has changed everything. Twitter, in fact, has changed everything. Yeah, Twitter, that annoying little website and mobile phone app that you love to hate, the one you're always complaining about. It's easy to miss the significance of this when we're all so wrapped up in things, but Twitter has transformed the political experience in this country for politicians, for journalists and for the wider public. And it's never more apparent than in weeks like these, when the whole of the UK sits up and tunes in to Westminster politics. If you're a political obsessive, then the chances are that you've been glued to Twitter all this week, hardly able to look away, unable to stop refreshing. It's been dripping events and commentary and jokes and gossip into your veins throughout the downfall of this Prime Minister. And it's been both a joy to watch and an absolute drain on your being. It's a love-hate relationship like no other in SW1. Almost nobody you speak to in Westminster would ever admit to actually liking Twitter. Yet almost nobody seems capable of staying away. For the past 11 years, I have spent several hours a day on Twitter. I wake up with a sweat and, you know, I've got to get a fix. I definitely look at Twitter before I do anything else. Whenever you have a crisis, people are looking for new information. British politics effectively happens on Twitter now. I've had various toxic habits in my life. None as bad as my Twitter addiction. So how did this happen? How did we let an American microblogging app take over our political conversation, the way we share political information, the way Westminster talks to itself in public? And is this actually a good idea? Is anyone capable of opting out? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at how Twitter took over British politics and whether there's anything we can do to get it back. So I was on the train into Westminster on Thursday morning, and I was tired. I mean, maybe not as tired as Boris Johnson on Thursday morning, but still... I've been up early to do breakfast tally and, you know, it's been kind of a long week. But that was okay, because my commute into Parliament is the best bit of my day. I travel in with my three-year-old daughter, we have bits of breakfast and stories on the train, and my mobile phone has to stay firmly in my pocket for 19 precious minutes. No WhatsApp messages, no emails, and above all, no Twitter. I'm not going to lie, it's bliss. But this Thursday... Sitting on a train without a phone was kind of a lonely place to be. Looking around the carriage, almost everyone was scrolling Twitter, 
watching Boris Johnson's government unravel in real time. I knew Nadim Zahawi, the new Chancellor, had just called on Johnson to go because I could see like three or four different people reading his resignation letter on their phones within a few moments of him tweeting it out. I knew Michelle Donnellan, Johnson's new and now former Education Secretary, had quit just 36 hours into the job because I could see people reading the lobby's tweets about it, shaking their heads in disbelief. Twitter's public, and so you're seeing the same information that everyone from the Prime Minister's team to members of the public, everyone is seeing the same Twitter. This is Nick Pickles, a senior director at Twitter over in the US. Whenever you have a crisis, people are looking for new information as soon as it happens, Uh, They want to hear from diverse voices. They want to hear from people in the know. And so I think that's why in in a political crisis, that's when its superpower comes to life. Whether it's the prime minister's team or my parents, they're looking at the same Twitter and they're seeing the same information, be it from journalists, be it from members of parliament, cabinet ministers resigning on the platform. And, you know, the first time the public sees a resignation letter is when it's tweeted. And so, you know, the first draft of history in these political moments, is being written on Twitter. It really is. And it's been like this the whole week. Chris Pincher resigned from government last night in disgrace. My understanding, uh, the Prime Minister has not been aware of specific allegations. We've just been handed a letter. That first torrent of stories about the disgraced Chris Pincher, his resignation from the Whip's office and, belatedly, his suspension from the Conservative Party Whip, Those awful Downing Street lobby briefings where they lied to our faces about what Boris Johnson knew and when. All of this you probably saw on Twitter first. When Simon MacDonald, the former head of the Foreign Office, published his extraordinary letter calling out Downing Street's lies on Tuesday morning, he did so. Where else? On Twitter. When Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak sensationally quit the Cabinet later that day, They both made their announcements on Twitter, tweeting out their resignation letters for the whole world to see. Can I bring you some breaking news? Mm. Sajid Javid has just tweeted his resignation as health secretary. He's tweeted just in the last few minutes saying that he's spoken to the prime minister to tender his resignation. I think Rishi Sunak has just resigned a tweet here. Junior ministers, PPSs, even trade envoys all chose the same platform to announce their departures. A minister who has resigned today has tweeted saying... We've also had a tweet... ..said on Twitter... ..has tweeted... We have a tweet, I think we have a tweet. Bim Afalami's decision to resign from his vice-chairman's post live on Talk TV... I think you have to resign. (laughs) ..seemed almost quaint in contrast. A 20th century moment of drama. Although the chances are you probably saw the clip on Twitter rather than on live TV. The rumours and confirmations of further departures came via Twitter, as did the rumours and the updates on not one but two cabinet reshuffles. Nadine Dorries had just walked into Downing Street, one lobby journalist told us excitedly on Tuesday evening. Within minutes, Twitter had decided she was Chancellor of the Exchequer. The hottest takes were all there, the most breathless updates, the anonymous briefings from angry MPs, the sense of a Westminster world whipped up into a febrile because it's always febrile, right? State of crisis was far more obvious on Twitter than it was actually walking round Parliament on Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon. Tuesday evening was when it started to unravel. This is my Westminster Insider co-host, Alva Ray, who spent most of this week wandering round Parliament, chatting to MPs and soaking up the, well, febrile atmosphere. 
what was funny was that we were being told by some journalists that the mood was febrile and then I'd be in PCH the Portcullis House the sort of the big atrium the gathering area within Parliament and I was looking around and I was thinking but is it actually febrile you know there were some there were some cabinet ministers there just like chatting away and laughing I had a drink with a Tory MP that evening about an hour before Rishi Sunak resigned um and it was still it was still fine. I was saying, you know, I think things are hotting up. You know, lots of your colleagues have been have been pretty angry today and they were agreeing that the mood was low. But in a way it sort of felt like at points real life was one step behind Twitter. <laughs> you know, then you know, then then you have that um Tory MP looking at his phone and then suddenly realizing <laughs> uh, quite how febrile the mood really was. You need to understand when you're watching weeks like this on Twitter is that we in Parliament are watching the exact same things unfold on Twitter in exactly the same way that you are. It's all coming in from different arenas. There's the Houses of Parliament, there's Downing Street, there are people having drinks and lunches and saying things, people in their offices planning whether they'll resign. So many different arenas. The only place where all that converges is on Twitter. And then in real life you're just playing catch-up. If if you followed your Twitter feed on Tuesday or Wednesday and watching the lobby journalists, MPs resigning, you sort of get the sense of Parliament being this place where everyone's just rushing around manically resigning and shouting at each other. But when you're there, it's not actually like that, is it? No. <laughs> there are There are brilliant moments where it becomes like that. But I think everyone has this frustrating feeling of being a spectator more than they wish they were. Um, there's a real feeling in PCH of people sort of nodding at each other that, you know, that it's a big day. And one sort of senior cabinet minister walks through and all their eyes like, turn to look at them. You do get a sense of the mood. Certainly that Tuesday night, a Tory staffer came over to me and the, and the Tory MP I was having a drink with and said, Save Big Dog is back on. There are drinks tonight. <laughs> and I was like, oh, where are the drinks? And I think then they kind of realised I was a journalist and they were like, just on the parliamentary estate. <laughs> and then David Canzini and really senior people from Boris Johnson's Number 10 were sort of circling around Portcullis House, clearly aware that things were about to get quite serious. This was less than an hour before Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid resigned. But they had big smiles on their faces and I think so much of it is sort of, you know, the duck paddling furiously below the surface, but outwardly it's much more calm and I think that's certainly the way being in parliament often feels it's often more exciting on your phone and in your whatsapps than anything you really see in person what I find so interesting about all of this is that the excitement which Alva talks about is a shared experience it's there in public for anyone who wants to join in parliament and the broader political conversation it's not the closed shop it once was Twitter has perhaps maybe kind of exploded the Westminster bubble in a way because a lot of the conversations that used to happen entirely internally now happen in full view of everyone. This is the freelance political journalist, Marie LeConte. She is, as you may have noticed, a particularly heavy Twitter user. Be that, you know, from like stupid arguments on Twitter between journalists and MPs to actually quite interesting policy discussions. So you do have, I think, an entire layer of discussions in, in SW1 that can now happen in full view of everyone. What's fascinating about Marie is that as a young wannabe political journalist in her early 20s, Twitter did not just offer a window into the closed world of Westminster. It was an actual open door that she was able to make her way through. There is... Not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that I would not have the job and the career 
I have right now if it had not been for Twitter. I've never been in the lobby. I've never had a lobby pass. I've never worked from Parliament. But instead, you know, my main thing is Twitter. That's where I can obviously so post my pieces so people read them. That's how I can get in touch with people. So I remember quite early on, so I think it must have been 2016, where I was doing this big feature and I had to talk to as many MPs as possible. And I do remember quite clearly, so I think DMing on Twitter 10 MPs and then uh, sending 10 emails to the offices of MPs I did not know and who did not follow me. And I think out of the 10 I messaged on Twitter, eight of them replied and ended up interviewing seven of those. And even more broadly, I think that is where you know, you kind of build a reputation, build a name for yourself. Because there's a bit of a vicious circle, isn't it? If I think your career can always benefit from being seen a lot in the House of Commons around Parliament, but it can be quite hard to get a job that gives you that access if you don't have that status quite yet. For example, quite a lot of lobby jobs just hire people who are in the lobby already. Um, and I do think that Twitter allowed me, certainly, and I'm sure like many other people, to kind of break that cycle slightly and say, hello, I am here now, whether you want it or not. And how does one get noticed in political Twitter. How did you manage to make yourself part of this conversation? Oh, that's a weird one, isn't it? I, I, I'm i not entirely sure. I think I, I just made um, a lot of stupid jokes all the time. And, and then eventually, you know, some of some people found those jokes funny and sort of like followed me back. I do think that that was the Twitter of about 10 years ago, which was different and it was quite a lot smaller and it felt friendly overall as well. So it was probably easier to kind of come in and say, hello, um, you know, this is me. These are my stupid tweets. Uh, whereas if someone were to join Twitter today, unless they were, you know, a member of parliament or someone very senior, I'm not quite sure how they would manage to really build a profile there. It hardly needs saying that for political journalists like myself, Twitter has transformed the job we do. News stories now play out right in front of you, without you even leaving your desk. Mini nuggets of news can be broken on Twitter the moment you have them. Your stories and indeed your every thought can be promoted personally to an audience of thousands. Gossip, theories and partly formed ideas can be bounced around and tested on fellow hacks and a wider audience before being committed to print. There are big journalistic downsides to all of this, of course. There's a tendency for groupthink, and indeed mass hysteria, in weeks like the one we've just been through. You get journalists tweeting out unchecked information, or anonymous source quotes badly in need of more context than 140 or 280 characters can provide. But the immediacy Twitter can offer, the sense of events unfolding second by second, is just impossibly exciting for political hacks and junkies alike. And for a modern-day political journalist, it's literally impossible to imagine the world without it. British politics effectively happens on Twitter now. So just in terms of doing my job, every Monday morning, what I do is just basically go through Twitter. So I actually read Playbook. I'm not just saying that because it's the Politico podcast. So I read Playbook um, and then I just crawl on Twitter until I get an idea for a piece. Um, and nearly every feature I think I've pitched over the past five years of being freelance has come one way or the other from Twitter. So I think there's that. I think it's also just that it's a very addictive format. And if you've got a website on which, you know, all your friends and colleagues and enemies and whoever else is on and talking to each other all the time, then of course you're going to join it and become part of the problem as a result. But Twitter has not just changed the way journalists cover British politics, nor just the way we all watch these dramatic political weeks play out. It's changed our politicians, changed the way they campaign, changed their prospects of success, and even the way they vote. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. 
Should offshore wind be measured in knots or watts? At Equinor, we measure it in gigawatts. When complete, Dogger Bank will be the world's largest offshore wind farm. It could provide the UK with 3.6 gigawatts of electricity, enough to power 5 million homes. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. It's July 2009, and the ruddy-faced 42-year-old leader of the opposition, David Cameron, is being interviewed on Absolute Radio. And I think the trouble with Twitter, the instantness of it, is, is I think there's too many twits might make a twat. <laughs> Cameron's comments caused a heated debate in Westminster at the time, but not over his stinging critique of Twitter, which didn't seem particularly controversial in 2009, but over whether it was OK to say the word twat on breakfast radio. But listening back to that clip now, it feels like something from another age... And in a sense, I suppose it is. The noughties were a more innocent time for politics and for politicians who could breeze merrily through life without committing Twitter gaffes or receiving Twitter abuse or blundering into Twitter storms of their own making. In fact, they could cruise along for weeks without being expected to crack a joke or express a view or really make a single public utterance at all. But in the 2010s, a whole new generation of MPs would discover the opportunities that Twitter provided them. Among those elected for the first time in 2015 was a young and barely known charity campaigner from Birmingham. Jess Phillips was only 33 years old at the time of her election and would be destined to wait another five years even for her first junior front bench job. In previous times, it's possible you might never have heard of her. But thanks largely to Twitter... She's an actual celebrity. Most people who I meet in the street, like you, people come up and ask you for selfies and want to talk to you and say they really like you. Nine times out of ten it is I follow you on Twitter. It's a platform that is well suited to somebody like me. 
in the sense that it allows conversation to go on, albeit that has got slightly more fractious. But also, like, you you know, you, you can be serious and funny at the same time. It allows people to see that you're actually a human yeah, and not yeah, an yeah. MP. Yeah, quite. Um, but although lots of people fall foul of that, and they don't seem like a human. There's two standards of Twitter, I would say. One is broadcast. That is what most members of Parliament do, is broadcast their information. Potholes, here I am at this event, whatever, like I, I went to so-and-so fate today. Or there is the genuinely conversational. And I suppose you borderline become like a commentator on the world rather than an active participant. So that's a risk without doubt but people feel like they can talk to me people I'll never meet feel like they've met me and can talk to me and in politics that's important that's the best thing about British democracy in my view more so than any other democracy in the world is we are close to our electorate they can come into our office and sit and have a cup of tea and and like you know most places in the world that seems like absolutely crackers and Twitter is another tool to make people who are you know from Skegness feel like they're sitting and having a cup of tea with me You're part of a generation of MPs that's only ever known Twitter politics. Can you imagine the world without it? I mean, I can't and I don't particularly want to. And I'm not here to say that it is entirely evil. It has democratised a a huge amount of things and contact. And I can speak to lots and lots more people. And when you run a campaign, I couldn't do it without Twitter now. I put one tweet up, I'll get 100,000 signatures on a petition. You know what I mean? Like that is like my mum ran campaigns in the 1970s. She didn't even have a house phone. Like, I mean... I, I, I cannot imagine. And so she used to like put in ads into local newspapers and go and hold town hall meetings to find people who'd been affected by like a, a specific um, drug company thing that she was doing. Like I'm like, somebody says to me, Can, this, this is happening theoretically because of a piece of legislation. I'm saying, give me two minutes and I'll find you eight people it's happened to. And I can find the case studies. So in many ways, that's a good thing that, that it's bringing the people into the politics. It's not just young or newly elected MPs who've grabbed this opportunity. Michael Fabricant is a 72-year-old Tory who's been MP for Litchfield since 1992. And yet the first thing he tells me when I sit down to discuss his Twitter use with him is that he gets 22 million interactions each month. I remember reading a book many years ago on the history of the BBC in the Second World War. And one of the reasons why the old BBC Empire Service, now the BBC World Service, was such a success in the Second World War and also the transmissions it did in German to Germany, which had far more impact in Germany than uh, the German propaganda broadcast of Britain ever had, was because of the mixture that they employed of not only news and facts and a tiny bit of propaganda, but also humour... Uh, music, comedy shows, and so on and so forth. And it was that mix that was so appealing. And that's how I use Twitter, uh, to try and be of interest to people, to be quirky. Because nobody's interested in a bore. And a lot of MPs and other people are rather boring on Twitter, just going on about the same old thing. Now, I can do that at times. I, I get carried away and start bagging on about the same old subject. But most of the time, I try and provide some variability. Is it a fine line between trying to be entertaining and saying things that MPs should not be saying in public? Oh, very much so. I mean, I quite often say things that I shouldn't be saying. And then you get the Twitter storm with thousands and thousands piling in. 
But then I look at my list of interactions and it's popped up to 30 million. And I think, oh, it's not all bad then. They might all hate me, but you know what? I'm getting a message across. Is it ever stressful when you're in the middle of one of those real storms? I know it's happened to you from time to time. Do you ever like, oh my God, this is awful? Or are you able to just shrug it off? Well, sometimes it's awful. Um, but most of the time I shrug it off. I mean, quite often, I mean, when people go on about my looks, my hair, or uh, making comments about, you know, being a Tory, or, you know, I sometimes highlight it, you know, and retweet it. You can't be a shy person on Twitter. As we all know, the sort of Twitter abuse that Fabricant is talking about sometimes goes way, way over the line. Some MPs, many of them female, are subjected to graphic abuse violent threats, really the worst kind of stuff imaginable. Few have suffered more than Jess Phillips. It definitely is affecting. It's it's tiring is the effect that it has on you. And so you sometimes think, well, I'm going to go out and say this thing. And then you think, oh, can I be bothered? I'm just going to get loads of grief. And the funny thing is, is that every time I trend on Twitter, which, you know, in some months of my life has been two, three times a week, and it's still at least once every, you know, couple of weeks I will be trending on Twitter. And I trend just as Jess, which I always quite like, like Madonna. Um, (laughs) Just like Madonna. But it's always because people hate me, not because people love me or are talking about me. It's Some of it is some like thousands of people retweeting the thing I've said. But at the same time, it's the reaction. So I'm always like, I don't understand why I'm trending on Twitter because I can't see what people are saying. For what it's worth, Twitter has taken big steps to intervene, now providing filters to screen out notifications and messages and suspending tens of thousands of accounts. I mean, it's still going on, I just can't see it. So uh, I was very much part of changing some of the way, the functionality on Twitter with regard to sort of pylons that cramp you out because I suffered from some of those that were about whether people would or wouldn't rate me. And there was no getting away from it, like it was constant notifications I mean there would be a hundred every minute at least like this was really really crowding you out so we looked at the functionality of how that happens that sort of dogpiling is what we would call it and change that so it does still happen to me people are still awful to me on Twitter and vile and vicious but I have really good filters and I only can see the notifications of people who have put ID to their accounts so I still get some stuff, like, you know, I still get, oh, God, you know, dreadful abuse that can get through somehow. But it's nowhere near as bad as it was. Are you happy with the steps they've taken? Is there more they should be doing? Look, I think that they they have done quite a lot that, like, in a sort of quickly changing environment, they have tried. But there is uh, just real fundamentals about what I would say the sort of libertarianism of all of Silicon Valley about there just needing to be just a, a principal set of standards about harmful but not illegal content and behaviour on Twitter. And that's not like people like, you know, there's one woman who's like a Tory councillor in London and she she's like, she's sort of slightly aggressively has a pop at me. But th- th- I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about people who spread vile disinformation and like, you know, there's memes about me on Twitter. They're just, uh, just literally libelous and there's nothing I can do about it because I'll never be able to trace those people. So I, I do think that they have got to have a set of standards I asked Twitter's Nick Pickles if the steps they've taken over recent years are enough, whether the job of combating abuse on Twitter is in fact now complete. 
No, I think I think that, you know, the truth truth is we'll never be there yet because every time we build technology, we change a policy. People are going to change how they behave. People are going to change how they try and game the system. And so we've always got to be conscious to that. But if I look back to when I first joined the company in 2014, if you didn't report something to Twitter, we didn't do anything. And at the time, there wasn't even reporting in-app. You had to copy a link to a tweet and go to a website. And then if we reviewed it and we said it broke our rules, the only thing we could do was do nothing or take it down. And so you end up with this very crude content moderation system that doesn't take into account all the complexities of life, but also is incredibly burdensome on the victim of that abuse. And, you know, I remember we first joined the company and people like Stella Creasy, Jess Phillips, um, Caroline Carrillo Perez had, had suffered um, incredible abuse because they were trying to campaign on issues of importance. Um, and that same campaign was being enabled and, and supported by Twitter. So where we are now in terms of the majority of the content we take down isn't reported, it's we proactively go and find it. Um, Recognising that people aren't always going to agree on what breaks our rules. So as well as the rules, we need to give people more tools, more choice, more control over making sure it's who can reply to your tweets, who can see your tweets, um, being able to filter out messages being sent to you from people that you don't follow or haven't confirmed a phone number. So building those tools, making sure our policies keep up with how people are behaving. But that work is always going to be ongoing. So British politics has changed Twitter, but not nearly as much as Twitter has changed British politics. We've heard how it can change the jobs, the public profiles, the very lives of our MPs, and how it's transformed political journalism and the way the public watches and interacts with Westminster. But something bigger has been going on too. Twitter, as we're always told, is not the real world. Your tweets are not going to change the outcome of a general election. But if you want to speak to the already politically engaged, those out there may be looking for a cause, then there's no better tool around. In the past 10, 15 years, the public's expectations of how they can engage has changed. I think one of the things that I look back on as being kind of instructive was round about when Twitter and social media were becoming bigger parts of British politics, you have the expenses scandal, you have the financial crisis. And so there was a, a number of different things happening that I think really brought people to, they didn't feel like they had a voice in Westminster. And I think, you know, expenses was a pretty you know, vivid demonstration of how the sense the political class wasn't really engaged in the same life that, that people were living around the country. And social media and Twitter was a way of expressing that. And uh, people began to both express and then organise. And so you see social movements starting to happen and starting to take place that couldn't get in the mainstream media, couldn't get airtime in Parliament, and suddenly you have these services that are actually not just powerful tools for people in power to get a message out, they were also a powerful tool for the public to talk about the issues that were important and make sure that they were being addressed by those in power. Yeah, I think it was particularly important in the 2015 leadership campaign in a whole number of ways. This is James Schneider, an early supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, who went on to found the left-wing Momentum Group and later became Corbyn's head of strategic comms. There were efforts from random activists on Twitter to get a left-wing candidate on the ballot paper. And so there was a lot of lobbying of MPs on that. Some of the MPs' nominations were influenced by you know, things that their constituents and that their party members were saying. So I think, for example, Chion Wurra in Newcastle Central 
ran a little poll of her party members who they wanted. Um, and that was massively amplified by Twitter and helped change her position. So I think, you know, Twitter provided a more porous relationship between MPs and the public, and that helped get Jeremy on the ballot paper in the first place. He had the, the best social media campaign of the four candidates, but mainly because it was viewed social media as something that you can, you know, you can organise people on rather than a broadcast mechanism. And actually, I think as time has gone on, Twitter has become much less like that. But back in 2015, we were using Twitter for, you know, organising rallies and finding activists who were able to do things. And, you know, it was a a much more two-way and dynamic thing. And then there's the fact that there was clearly, I mean, as we saw, there was clearly a big potential constituency for an anti, anti-austerity, pro-peace, uh, anti-neoliberal candidate. And it wasn't going to get any expression from, you know, the public pronouncements of, of most Labour politicians or in the media. So social media became, you know, the vehicle through which you could suddenly see that was being expressed a lot. Let's talk about how you use Jeremy Corbyn's Twitter account. What sort of things would you be looking to do with it? Obviously, it's one thing, you know, if you're making some sort of policy announcement, it's probably some carefully worded statement you've all agreed on. But it didn't just do that, did it? Sometimes you're trying to be entertaining or sassy. I don't know. We would see if there were opportunities to make news ourselves. This might seem slightly peculiar given the politics of it, but I remember studying Benjamin Netanyahu and how he uses video and was an early adopter of using video on social media in order to make news. So rather than having a, you know, an agreed news line popping down to the broadcast studio, trying to trying to say it and try to sort of get it into the bloodstream that way or pumping out press release, you make your own video, you put it out and you create news from that. One nice example of that there was a, a JP Morgan report which said that the Labour Party was a threat to the British economy. So we then turned that into a video. You know, Jeremy voiced a video saying... So when they say we're a threat, they're right. We're a threat to a damaging and failed system that's rigged for the few. That was on the front page of the FT the next day and got covered in most of the papers and got referred to on broadcast. In the literature, they call it hybrid media, which is a slightly naff way of putting it. But basically, you're trying to use social in order to have impact in press and broadcast. And you seem to have around the Corbyn account itself, you had some very prominent, supportive Twitter accounts who were very pro-Jeremy Corbyn and had big followings of their own, operating independently of yourselves, but who would amplify the message, weigh in behind it, you know, take out critics and so on. There were content creators, people who made videos and memes and messages, um, which could basically get filtered up through the chain. And if you know something's going very well, then you could amplify it. So I, mean, I remember thinking about this in the 2017 election when the Tories had many more people working in social media and more money, as in more people employed in social media. And it felt like we had hugely more capacity to create content because we had, you know, loads of filmmakers and, you know, random people across the country who were energised and who had a good idea and they could, it, they could feed it in by just making the thing and then seeing how it went. 
This kind of thing can, in turn, influence the way that Parliament acts. Twitter might not be changing so many hearts and minds out in the real world, but in Westminster, the sheer volume of noise from activists and journalists and so on can push officials, ministers and even MPs to change course. It definitely, definitely makes it more febrile. Jess Phillips. Without a shadow of a doubt, it has changed people's votes. It literally, fundamentally, can affect our democracy. And that... That is a uh, responsibility I don't know that they know how to bear or do anything about. But I have absolutely no doubt that fear of uh, a Twitter mob, it, you know, even not, not, I'm not even talking about the harmful here, just the, the sort of the, the volume nature of it has undoubtedly changed people's votes in, in our democracy. I'm not talking about, you know, regulation on disposable barbecues. Uh, I'm talking about matters of war and peace. I have to check myself all the time, like, don't be doing this, you know, because of the gamification, essentially. But I have no doubt that somebody being frightened of a response has voted a different way on something. I've no doubt. So as you're scrolling through Twitter this weekend, whether you're wincing at some pointless argument between political journalists or staring open-mouthed at the blow-by-blow fall of a once-mighty Prime Minister... It's worth reflecting on how much has changed in our politics since this platform arrived in our lives. Would Corbyn have happened without Twitter? Would Brexit and all the rest? And perhaps more topically, would Boris Johnson have been brought down this week without Twitter adding to this, or perhaps creating this, supposedly febrile atmosphere in Westminster, without MPs watching the resignation letters mount up and mount up in their news feeds? Is this the herd mentality bemoaned by Boris Johnson in his resignation speech. There's no counterfactual to a world without disruptive technology, of course, but there's also no doubt that it's shaping our lives and our politics every minute of every hour of every day. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with Alva Ray and me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.